Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Trina Robbins, who has a memoir, Last Girl Standing. Trina Robbins has had several careers. She's been a clothing designer and a cartoonist and artist, and was the first woman to draw Wonder Woman. Uh, she had a life as a underground comics artist in the days when there were virtually no women underground comics artists. And more recently, she's become a writer, and there are at least 14 books of nonfiction Many more. I always tell people to take my Wikipedia page with a grain of salt. I've given up on correcting them. I mean, I used to correct them all the time, and it was really hard because you have to do it in certain ways, and I would just say, but I'm Trina Robbins. This is my page. I know these facts. You would said that Last Girl Standing is one of four books that have come out in the past year? In 2017, four books in 2017. You know, people ask me how many books I've written, and I actually do not know. I have never counted them. It's just like I live on the third floor. As you know, you just navigated those stairs. People say, how many steps are there? And I say, I never counted them. So let's talk about those four books, this Last Girl Standing, which is a memoir of your life. It takes us up to the present, but most of the book takes us to about 1975-78. What are the other three books? Okay, one of them is called Babes in Arms, and that is part of a series that I have written since 1985. I've written histories of women cartoonists, because when the guys have written comics histories... They just want to write about the Hulk and Stan Lee and Spider-Man. They're not interested in women who drew comics. So what happened, my big discovery really, when researching all of my books, is that if you're not written about, you're forgotten. So all of these women have been forgotten until I started writing about them. Because there were many, many women drawing comics since 1896. But until I started my books, nobody knew about them. So this is specifically collects the work of four women who drew comics during the war. That's why it's Babes in Arms. During World War II. During World War II, yes. Before we get into your own life, who were these women? Barbara Hall, Jill Elgin, Lily Renee, and Fran Hopper. Of the four of them, Lily is still with us. She is in her mid-90s. She is a wonderful, gracious woman who never lost her Viennese accent. She was a refugee. She was a Jewish girl in Vienna when the Nazis moved in in 1938. She was a refugee who came to America during the war. Were they cartoonists for any of the major, like what became DC or Marvel? DC and Marvel, no. 
But during the war, as in every other industry, the guys were off fighting and the women took their jobs. So you had more women at that time drawing for comic books than ever before. And now there are even more women ever before, you know. But in those days, that was the most women that had ever worked for comic books. Lily and Fran Hopper worked for Fiction House, which I have to say is my favorite publication. I love their comics. And they hired more women than any of the other publishers. What was the name of the comic that they did? They did a lot of different comics. Fiction House had a line. There was Fight Comics, Rangers Comics, Planet Comics. I think there were six all in all. Planet Comics was obviously their science fiction title. And they worked for, like, really all of them. I mean, for Planet Comics, for instance, Lily Renee drew The Lost World. And they were ongoing stories, you know, where the Volta men, people from the planet Volta, who really are green-skilled Nazis, I mean, they're wearing these helmets that look like Nazi helmets, have invaded Earth, you know, and destroyed civilization. But these two plucky Hunt Bowman, what a great name. He has a bow and arrow, and that's how he fights. And Lissa, his, his beautiful girlfriend who was once a princess and wears these beautiful little rags, how they're resisting the Volta men and fighting back. And so she drew The Lost World, and Fran Hoppe drew this wonderful series, again for Planet, called Mista of the Moon, which was this beautiful woman. She lived on the moon. As a child, some scientists subjected her to some ray that made her the wisest person in the universe. So she kind of rules over the universe with the aid of her faithful robot from her place on the moon. Did they write these as well? They didn't write them. They just drew them. But I know that Lily co-plotted a lot of them. They also did stuff for Fight. They did stuff for Rangers. These comic books eventually found themselves overseas with the G.I.s. Yes, the G.I.s loved them. I mean, for one thing, even the ones that were not drawn by women always featured pretty girls, often in the lead, which was very rare. It wasn't just a bunch of overly muscled guys rescuing the pretty girls. These girls were the heroines. They were girl detectives. They were aviatrixes. They were science fiction heroines, jungle girls, Fran Hopper drew a series called Camilla. She wore this zebra-striped bathing suit and in the jungle. Just great stuff. How did you find them? Well, I have to tell you to start with that as a kid, I read these comics. Did and you? I loved them. Yeah. Typical superhero comics bored me to tears. Bunch of short-haired guys in dopey costumes rescuing girls or fighting villains. But these had women heroes. And they wore cute clothes, too, very 1940s-looking clothes. I loved them. I loved them. I didn't know who drew them. When you were a kid, you just read the comics. It doesn't even occur to you that they were drawn by a human being. But when I started researching the comics in the middle 80s, they signed their work. And they didn't use pseudonyms. No, this, this is a myth that women had to use male names to be printed. This is not true. Fran Hopper's work was signed Fran Hopper. Lily Renee's, okay, I have to say Lily Renee's work was signed L. Renee. But so what? I thought it was drawn by a woman named Renee. Jesus, I have such, such awe and respect for Lily. You know, I don't get to New York that often, but I always see her. 
when I get to New York, she's wonderful. She never lost her Viennese accent. And when she phones me, I know it's her. I pick up the phone and she says, Trina. And she sounds like, like the Gabor sisters. I want to get to your memoir, but you said that there were two other books released in 2017. What yes. were those? One of them is a reprint of a comic, an adaptation of a 1919 novel by Sax Romer that I adapted and serialized in the early 80s for an anthology magazine called Eclipse, Eclipse Monthly or Eclipse Comics, I forget which. In 1971, there was a science fiction and fantasy bookstore downtown San Francisco that was closing and selling everything for a dollar. Of course I went and bought a whole bunch of books. And there I saw the words just in caps, emblazoned, you know, on the dope. And I went, whoa, what's this? And it was Sax Romer, and the price was right, so I bought it. And I read it, and I went, wow, I would love to adapt this. Well, I didn't get to adapt it for another, like, you know, 12 years. But I did finally adapt it in serialized form. And finally, in 2017, it is published complete as a graphic novel, all the chapters put together. And I have to say it holds up really well. The book is Dope. That's the name of it. I love that title, Dope. And the fourth one? Okay, my father came to America at the age of 16. He came from a little village, or a shtetl, as they are called, in what is now Belarus, but was then just Russia. He was a writer, like father, like daughter. But he wrote in Yiddish. He spoke excellent English, but with an accent. He read in English, and he was very well read, but he wrote in Yiddish. And he wrote small bits, articles, stuff like that, for the Yiddish-language newspapers, of which there were many in New York at the time. And he also wrote a book. He wrote this one book in 1938 in Yiddish. And I thought, well, I'm never going to find this book. Come on. Book published in 1938 in Yiddish, never find it. But my daughter is wonderful, and the Internet is wonderful, and she found it, of course. So I bought it. I had it translated, and I said... This would make a great graphic novel. It's a series of short stories. So I took the 12 ones that I felt adapted best into comic form, and I adapted them, and I found 12 different artists to illustrate them. And the book's title is Aminian Yidden und andere Sachen, which was the book's title and the comic's title. And I translate that as A Bunch of Jews and Other Stuff. Trina Robbins... Toward the end of Last Girl Standing, you mentioned that you stopped drawing yourself. Why did you stop? Well, you know, it's kind of like Pavlov's dog. If you reward someone over and over again, they'll want to do the same thing because they get rewarded. But if you don't reward them, if you smack them down all the time, at a certain point they'll say, I don't want to do this anymore, maybe they can't. And that is kind of, I have to say, what was happening to me. The underground and I never really quite saw eye to eye. We were different. You know, and I certainly didn't fit in with the mainstream superhero stuff. So here I was, you know, all alone. There were incidents. The worst of it really was when some women turned against me because women's comics had been my sanctuary. And we were all friends, the Women's Comics Collective. We were friends. We'd go out for coffee together, you know. But... Some of the women didn't like me, and 
found reasons to turn against me, and I felt nobody wanted me anymore. There were new artists who were putting out books, and they didn't invite me into their books. I felt I, felt I was over the hill. I felt nobody wanted me, and it got to the point where I couldn't start drawing anything without feeling extreme anxiety and deep depression, so I stopped. Do you draw at all just on your own now? I doodle when I'm on the phone. Let's go back over your career. When you were growing up, you doodled like you do now, but you never thought of yourself as someone who would become an artist or cartoonist, did you? Well, I did, actually. I didn't think cartoonist because as a kid, it doesn't even occur to you that real people draw these comics. But I was going to be an artist. My father, I had good parents, really good parents. My mother taught me to read when I was four years old. And my father used to take me to museums all the time, specifically the Brooklyn Museum because we lived in Queens. And I loved the museums, and I was going to be a, a painter. I was going to do real paintings like the ones that, that I saw in museums. But somehow you wound up doing clothing. Well, you know, I always loved clothing, and we were poor. My father had Parkinson's disease, and so my mother supported us all on a school teacher's salary, which, you know, I don't have to say anything more about that. So everything I wore really was hand-me-downs. I, I wore my sister's outgrown clothes, sometimes my cousin's outgrown clothes, but I loved clothes. I loved them. And my father had been a tailor when he could still sew. I learned how to sew on his old treadle sewing machine. At some point, you became a hippie. Now, the hippies of the era tended to be rebels against their family. Were you a rebel? No, because I had great parents. I didn't have to rebel. My parents weren't the usual boring middle-class people. My mother was a schoolteacher, as I said. My father was very left-wing. My mother was too, but not as outspoken as my father. Who was. I mean, he stopped short of joining the Communist Party, but he was very, very left-wing. So what was there to rebel against? You went down to the village. You became friends with the folk singers, good yes. friends with Dave Van Ron. Mm -hmm. What was he like? Ah, such a sweet guy. I was probably like 15 or 16 when I started hanging out with these science fiction fans, and he was 17. And even coming from the same neighborhood in Queens, but I didn't know that at the time. Just this jovial, jovial guy with an incredible voice. I really loved Dave. Uh, did you get to, to meet people like Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, the other people from that era? I never met Peter, Paul, and Mary, but we did. I, my my ex-husband and I definitely met Bob Dylan, and my ex-husband interviewed him, did an interview for the L.A. Free Press in 1965, I think it was, and it's all over the Internet. You can Google his name, Paul J. Robbins, and that interview comes up. And you also were friends with Donovan? Yeah, I made clothes for Donovan, and he's on the cover of my book, Sucking on a Lily. At a certain point, I guess you knew some of these people before you went to L.A., or people like the birds you only met when you came out. I met them in L.A. I met Bob Dylan in L.A., too. Donovan, too. So you spent a lot of time with the rock crowd of Laurel Canyon. You know, I still that music as. I, you know, I guess I'm a real geezer because I think the best music comes from that period. Listening to today's music, it's awful. 
I loved it. I loved that scene. And because we were part of it, we got into all the clubs free. We went almost every night. I danced almost every night. You had a brief affair with Jim Morrison. What was he like? First of all, obviously, I mean, it's not going to be a surprise to say that he was irresistible. He looked like a Renaissance painting. He looked like a Botticelli angel, you know, with that curly dark hair. And his eyes really did kind of glow. I don't know how to describe it. They didn't literally glow. Nobody's eyes glow, but they seemed to just glow. You know, and of course I loved their music. How could I resist him? I mean, Jim Morrison wants to sleep with you. You're going to say no? Well, there was also Harlan Ellison in there as well. I didn't well. sleep with Harlan Ellison, <laughs> but I did date him. That was when you were involved with the science fiction people in yes. New York. Yes, yes. I was a 16-year-old fan, of, and he was a 21-year-old. He had just published his first book. It was the one where, under the pseudonym of Cheech Beldon, he, he joined a, a teen gang. What was it called? Rumble. Rumble. It was called Rumble. <laughs> was there much relationship between the L.A. rock bands of the era and the New York science fiction fandom? The rock groups were very into science fiction. Uh, the birds were really into science fiction. When we first met them, describing their gestalt, how they all got along so well together, he said they, he huh? said they blushed. They were, they were Theodore Sturgeon fans. They were science fiction fans. Did the Mamas and Poppers, were they also science fiction? I think probably. I think they all were, all the, you know, the young, hip people. You know, science fiction, which had started out as a geeky thing. I mean, when I read science fiction in high school, I was like, I was a loser. Nobody read science fiction. You know, I was the geeky girl. But by the 60s, you know, there were books that like like Cat's Cradle or like Stranger in a Strange Land that were like, and of course the Hobbit books, that became hippie Bibles. And you were making clothes for these people and dancing every night. So you made clothes for Mama Cass. I did. She couldn't find anything nice in her size. So I made clothes for her. What was she like? She was so nice. I always felt that Cass, she kind of forced you to like her. She just came on, hi, I'm Cass Elliot. And what could you do? You had to like her. You know, your first impression might have been fat girl, but suddenly you weren't thinking that anymore. You were just thinking, wow, what a nice person. And then there was a period, it was only a month when you went back because you'd gone back to New York and you were down in the canyon and Joni Mitchell wrote a song and you're one of the people in the song. Ladies of the Canyon, yes. <laughs> Uh, did you know her well? Well, I met her that month that I that I came to back to L.A. from New York. I met her because David Crosby was producing her first album. Well, I thought she was wonderful, of course. You know, she her voice was like crystal, and she was so beautiful. Talk about the ultimate, you know, the ultimate folky chick or whatever, you know, with the long, straight, blonde hair mm. and tall and thin, and her music was wonderful. Her lyrics were brilliant. Did you ever meet either the Rolling Stones or Beatles? My ex-husband and I actually went out to dinner with the bass guitarist, Bill Wyman. Yes, we went out to dinner with him. Harlan Ellison was like interviewing him or something for Playboy, and he took us along. And Bill was very smart, very, very smart guy. Somehow the bass players are always the smartest. They're quiet and smart. 
Did you did you ever meet any of the San Francisco people? Uh, there's mention of Joplin in the book, but did you meet anybody from the dead or the airplane? Not the dead, but the airplane, yes. I knew Paul Kantner and some of the others, you know, Yorma. They were friends of the birds. We would hang out with the birds, and so we would meet their friends. During that period, I mean, now we have the Me Too movement. How were women treated? <laughs> we'll, we'll hit women in comics in a minute, but how were the women treated in the rock and roll crowd? I mean, how were you treated? I was treated fine because I was not a groupie. I was married, and I was friends with these people and made clothes for them. So I was always treated very well. But there, in general, the rock guys, their treatment of women was very cavalier. I've talked about this in my book. I mean, they would show up at our house visiting us with the latest, their latest chick on their arms, you know, and she'd be gorgeous, you know, with the heavy eye makeup and the long straight hair. And they'd show up with her a couple of times and suddenly she'd be phoning me and saying, do you know where David is? Have you heard from David? You know, and the guys would just drop them. They would just drop them. But what happened often is we inherited them. I inherited them as my girlfriends. Trina Robbins, what's it like to write a comic book? Is it like writing a short story? It's more like writing a play, I think. You know, when I've taught comic writing, I always use plays as an example. It is great fun and even better now that we have computers because I just love sitting at that computer and pressing those keys. It feels good. In your head, are you seeing the images? Oh, yes, of course, because I used to draw them. I know exactly how everything looks, and I describe it. I give very detailed scripts. When the artists come back to you, it usually looks pretty much what you intend. I always ask to see pencils, and I also send lots of reference, lots of reference. Stuff I find on the Internet, I mean, say say it's a kitchen from 1920s. You know, I'm not even necessarily the Internet because I collect old magazines. I go to my old women's magazines from the 20s. There's these great kitchens, you know, and I just scan them in and send them. This is a kitchen from the 20s. I send reference material all the time. Well, the bulk of Last Girl Standing is actually about your work during the era when you were a cartoonist uh, and comic book artist, during that period, a lot of it has to do with the fact that women were excluded well, badly. I'll say. Okay, treated much worse, much worse than in the rock world. There was a clique of male cartoonists. It was a boys' club. It was also a clique. They would invite each other into their books. You know, the way you did it was you would just decide to do a, a comic and you'd phone up your buddies and you'd say, I'm going to do a book. Uh, you want to contribute four pages, six pages, eight pages, whatever. And soon they'd have enough for a comic. But nobody invited me into their comics. Or the other women. Or the other women. To say other women, that would mean like in 1971, one other woman. You were basically excluded, which is why you began saying, screw it, I'm going to do my own. Yes, exactly. When they saw that, were they jealous? Did they ignore you? I think they ignored me. I, they, I don't think they had a high opinion of women's comics or of the very first one, It Ain't Me, Babe. You know, the expression draws like a girl. Guys never liked or approved of the way women drew, really. I, you know, not in, not in those days. 
Well, I remember, and it's in the book, but I remember there was a point where underground comics just suddenly became violently masochistic toward women. Was that gradual? Was it sudden? You know, it was weirdly sudden. It was like almost overnight. And, of course, the big influence in that case was Crumb. As far as I have been told, I think he, to- he said it in an interview, it was S. Clay Wilson who, who told him, just, just do what you want. You know, don't hold yourself back. Don't censor yourself. And he went, okay. And apparently he had all this really, really deep resentment towards women and started showing it on his page by taking his revenge on them, you know, by depicting them as humiliated and tortured and and raped and sometimes killed. And because he was such a cultural icon, and he was a counterculture icon, the other guys in the undergrounds went, oh, yeah, that's cool, I'll do it too. And that's kind of the way it happened, really. And how did their wives respond? As far as I know, the wives did not respond negatively. I responded negatively. And you told them? Yes, yes. And I was told that I had no sense of humor. You know how people will say really anti-Semitic, homophobic, whatever. They'll say these things and you'll object to it and they'll say, oh, I'm only kidding. That was their reasoning. Oh, it's satire. But you know that when you're doing this, you mean it. You also spent time with people in the Warhol factory. Yes. Where did they fit in? That was, I guess, an introduction to you of a different kind of counterculture. I had my boutique in the East Village. One day, John Vaccaro came in. He was a very, very well-known producer and director and writer in the Andy Warhol underground, which was a whole other underground. Like the Andy Warhol scene was kind of contemporary with the hippie scene, kind of like side by side, and sometimes they mixed. Anyway, he came into my boutique and looked around, and and we got into a conversation, and he asked me if I'd like to costume a play he was producing, and whoa, sure, great. So I costumed this play called Conquest of the Universe, and it was great fun. It was great fun, and I got to to meet and costume all these these people who are, you know, quite well-known if you know that scene, people like Ultraviolet or Dean or Taylor Mead. And they were various degrees of nice to terrible. Some of them were awful, bitchy, awful. Some of them were just total sweethearts. Well, in all of those scenes, there's a, an undercurrent, of course, in that particular scene of transgender and gay people. Oh, yes. But overall... Was the comic book scene homophobic, or was the rock and roll scene? How did they deal with these? It doesn't even really appear in your book. I think the comic book scene was very homophobic. I think misogyny and homophobia go hand in hand. I don't know as much about the rock scene, whether there was homophobia there. I'm guessing there was. You know, middle 60s, young men... It was very straight, but there's a difference between being straight and being homophobic. And I think that the underground cartoonists were homophobic. I mean, I think of Spain, who objected to to feminism, to what we called women's liberation, because he said, oh, it just turns all these women into lesbians. What about the more mainstream comics? It sounds like the the misogyny was very 
overt in the underground world, but in the mainstream. Now, you got to spend a little bit of time with Stan Lee and the folks at Marvel. Well, you know, they had censorship. They couldn't be misogynistic if they wanted to. Of course, there was a certain misogyny, but it was milder. It was the misogyny of just not including women. The women characters in their comics, even the superheroines, were very weak characters, and there really were no women drawing for them. Women did have a role in, in their books, like Marvel and DC, but they were, they were the wives and girlfriends of the artists who got coloring jobs, you know, office work, secretaries. Marie Severin, though? Marie Severin was an exception. There were like two exceptions, right? Marie Severin at Marvel and Ramona Freighton at DC, and that was it. And you got the gig in the 80s to draw a few Wonder Womans for DC. Yes, I did. I did a four-part series and really enjoyed it. So what do you think of the current uh, Wonder Woman film? Did you have anything to do with it? Oh, my God, I loved it. I didn't have anything to do with it, but I was fortunate enough to be invited to the premiere at the Pantages in Hollywood. My most glamorous moment was <laughs> attending that and then going to the after party, wow, with all these movie stars. The movie was wonderful. I've seen it twice. I'll Sure, I'll see it again. It seems to be starting a new era. Uh, you mentioned uh, when we began the interview that there are a lot more women cartoonists now. Oh, there are more women now than ever before, than ever, ever, ever before, drawing comics, writing comics, creating comics, and they're girl-friendly. It used to be that if you wanted to work for the big two, and there was nothing else. I mean, there was the underground, and there was the big two, and that was it. If you wanted to work for the big two, you had to draw in a I, you know, and men and women do draw in different styles. And you had to draw in the guy style, which to me is very cold. It's a very cold style. And it, it was mostly consisted of guys with big muscles and, and big chins and thick necks punching each other out. And this is not something that women tend to be interested in or to want to draw. So, you know... That was it, but they have opened up, you know, at a certain point in the 21st century, the, the people in control, like a little light bulb, went off over their heads and they went, oh, there's 52% of the population, we could be reaching them, they would buy our comics, that would make us more money. When you're talking about the difference between how women draw and how men draw, could I look at a comic and know whether it was a man or woman just by looking at it? Older comics, yes, today there are a lot of men who draw in girl-friendly styles, what I call girl-friendly, which means warmer, really, which means warmer and not muscles and big chins and thick necks, you know, who tell real stories, men and women who do that. Although I can still look at certain books, and I can know that's by a chick. Really? Yeah. How? Okay, I was in Brazil... And I was talking about this in Brazil. I was like, I was, I was doing a talk at a comic book store in Brazil, and looking at the comics that they sold. And there was this one, and I've been waiting for it to be translated into English because I really want it. It's called Kiki of Montparnasse, and I knew who she was. You know, Man Ray photographed her. She was very famous artist, model, and muse. And just looking at it, I thought, this is so female. Men just wouldn't do it this way. Although it was all in 
Portuguese, and I had no idea what the name could have been anything. When I was talking and they said, how can you tell? I said, I just know. And I used that as an example. And they looked it up, and sure enough, it was by a woman. What about racism in these various fields, uh, particularly the comic book, the underground comic book world? Oh, my God. It was considered just as funny as humiliating women. It was considered just as funny as that to draw to draw black people, African Americans, like horrible racist 1930s cartoons with big fat lips and black and, you know, and feats do yo stuff and things like that. And what about in the rock world? You know, African-American rock was so great. I don't think there was that same kind of racism, not with that great music. And, you know, these guys, you know, even if they were white and straight, they knew their music. They knew what was good. These guys were good musicians. So I think they had enormous respect for African-American rock. But the underground world was considered this countercultural thing, but it's misogynist, homophobic, incredibly racist. Yes, (laughs) Yes, yes. <laughs> did, did you notice the contradiction at the time? Well, of course I did, of course I did. But I was a voice in the wilderness. I mean, really, you know, if there were only two women in San Francisco drawing comics in 1971, you know, and no internet. And meanwhile, the underground was so, was so popular, it was almost, these guys were almost like rock stars in San Francisco, really. Was that one of the reasons, I mean, obviously you pulled back for many reasons and began doing your own thing. Once you began doing that, did you completely disconnect from those folks? Well, I knew them. I'd never stopped talking to them, you know, when I saw them. We were on polite terms. Actually, there were a couple of guys who wouldn't even speak to me, which is really amazing. They ignored me, but if we were in the same room, they were polite to me. What about Crumb? He was polite to me, too, but at a certain point, I'm, I'm afraid he became such a culture hero that he didn't even have to be polite anymore. At a certain point, he turned very rude. And really, one of my favorite quotes is in an interview that he gave. Um, it was shortly after the Crumb movie. And I guess they asked him about it, in which he described me as a shrill little shrew. I love that. Who was Nell Brinkley? Here is a woman who was so great and who in her time was a superstar, I mean really nationally famous, who made newspaper headlines, and she was completely forgotten. Her period was 1907 to about 1937. She was so famous, except for a small group of fans, fans of the obscure. She was completely forgotten because no one wrote about her. She was a cartoonist. She was immensely successful, what? superstar cartoonist who drew beautifully, beautifully. I have two books on her. And since they came out, you know, now she's not forgotten anymore. And people love her. I was at a convention once, and this woman had had Nell Brinkley drawings tattooed on her arm. Was she just an artist? Did she have particular strips? She did serialized Sunday pages, which told stories like the 1920s serials, you know, starring women like Pearl White. She did these serials, another chapter each Sunday. Later after that, she did, like through the 20s, 
really more like comics pages, except they were not quite comics pages because they didn't have panels. They didn't have speech balloons, but they'd be a series of drawings, and the, the captions and the story would be underneath each picture. So they were definitely comics. Trina Robbins, you doing the writing of graphic novels. Are you still doing any uh, sewing? I am the queen of thrift shops, the San Francisco queen of thrift shops. Mostly my sewing consists of finding some wonderful object or dress in a thrift shop. And of course, because I'm very short, I always have to adjust them and take the hem up. I still, of course, have my sewing machine, a lot of hemming. And have you ever heard of upcycling? And what it is is you take a thrift shop dress and you change it, you add stuff, you subtract stuff. And I, I had one experience. I decided I would try upcycling something. So I got this, this dress from the 80s, vintage dress from the 80s, and I liked the fabric. It was white. It looked like it probably was linen, but I don't think it was. I think it was rayon. And it had a really wonderful crocheted neckline. So I really liked it. So I brought it home. First thing I did, you remember the 80s, they had those giant shoulder pads. So I removed the shoulder pads. But as soon as you remove the shoulder pads, the waist drops four inches because the shoulder pads were holding right. it up. So I said, okay, this is my opportunity to upcycle. So I completely changed it. At the same time that I bought the dress, another mistake I made at the thrift shop was I bought a shirt that I really liked. I liked the plaid, but when I brought it home, it was much too big for me. So I turned that into pockets and a little kind of ruffle at the edge of the dress after taking the waist back up. And voila, there's this great upcycle dress. And you were doing this for all these rock stars way back when, the oh, same yeah, sort of thing. Oh, yeah, but I was making them from scratch. Oh, really? Although I used to use a lot of old, like I would add old tapestries and old lace and things like that. Do they pop up on old album covers? Well, you can see Cass's dresses on YouTube, and I think maybe in an album cover. I don't know. On Wikipedia, there's one book that seems a little out of place. I don't even know. Forbidden City, the Golden Age of Chinese yes. nightclubs. What is that? Well, remember, I'm not just into comics. I'm into things old and interesting. And the way I found out about the Chinese nightclubs, I had known nothing about them, was I take dance classes. And these older women showed up in my dance class, these Chinese women, and they were great, they were glamorous, they wore makeup, they were fabulous dancers. And I found out the reason they were so glamorous and such good dancers was they had danced in the nightclubs, in the Chinese nightclubs. Well, in their case, in the 50s. But the clubs really lasted from 1937 to about 1964 or so. In San Francisco? In San Francisco's Chinatown. And their height, their height was the 40s, the wartime, when all the soldiers would come to San Francisco for R&R and go to the nightclubs. These women were so glamorous, and the men too. That reminds me of the Broadway show Flower Drum Song, which takes place in a nightclub in yes, San Francisco. Yes, yes, it's based on the night, the famous nightclub Forbidden City. There were a lot of nightclubs, but probably the most famous was Forbidden City, and they based that on Forbidden City. 
I got to interview these women, some of them who had danced or sang in the 40s, and the men too. Some of them were, alas, shortly after I interviewed them, they passed away. So I'm really, really grateful that I actually got to know them and got to meet them and interview them before that. Trina Robbins, here we are, 2018, and there's the Me Too movement. Do you feel some kind of vindication? Because this has been about mostly politics and uh, entertainment, yet it sounds to me like there's this whole other area, in particular, a little bit music, but in particular the comic book world. I feel total vindication. You know, I really was a voice in the wilderness in the early 70s saying this is sexist, this is misogynist, and nobody listening. And now everyone is pointing at sexism and misogyny. And I, I feel completely vindicated, and it's, it's really not, I'm not a voice in the wilderness anymore. And from a political perspective, beyond feminism, were you tackling other political issues in your comics when you were doing them? Well, I mean, all of us in the 60s were against the war in Vietnam. Of course I'm anti-war. I did produce in, when was the Webster decision? Was that 1990? Well, that was, you know, the, the Supreme Court ruling, putting abortion ruling in the hands of the states. And we know what happened, don't we? You know, look at, look at what's happening in 2018. So I produced with another woman, a, a book called Choices, which was a pro-choice book that benefited the National Organization for Women, and I'm very proud of that. So yeah, I've been political, and I also did a book about AIDS. I, I co-edited that with two other cartoonists, Robert Tripto, who was the editor of Gay Comics, and Bill Sienkiewicz, who is a very, very well-known New York mainstream cartoonist, and that one made a lot of money for AIDS-related causes, and I'm very proud of that one, too. Trina Robbins, you have four books that just came out. Are you working on more now? I've just sent someone a proposal for a graphic novel that I would like very much to do, and I, she received the, the proposal, but that was yesterday, so I, I, there's time. So you're not going to have anything out in 2018? Oh, I will. I will. There's another reprint. This guy, Drew Ford, has a publishing company called It's Alive! Exclamation point. And what he does is he takes work that deserves to be reprinted that has just totally fallen out of print, like Dope. He published Dope. And this is a, a graphic novel I did, in again, in the 80s. It was my adaptation of a novel by Tad Lee, The Silver Metal Lover, which the few people that found it liked it, but this was before there were graphic novels, really. And the bookstores didn't know what to do with it. It was a comic, so they would put it into humor. And it's not humor, you know, it's beautiful romantic fantasy. Before I go, quickly, what's your favorite graphic novel? Oh, sure. It's a wonderful book that I really loved called Nimona by a woman that was originally done for the computer, you know, and then turned into a book. Well, of course, Mouse, you know, and of course, Fun Home. You know, some of these are so wonderful and such classics. Persepolis, these are the classics, but there's so many more. I mean, if you want to walk me to the bookcase, I'll just start pulling them out <laughs> and giving you the title. I can be reached at bookwaves.com, and you can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky Podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. 
Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.